This is the day I've been waiting for almost 30 years now, over 30 years. And I have as my guest Michael Reed, who was a former narcotics officer in England. When we, when we went to England in 1965 with a plane load of, three plane loads of businessmen, and something happened in England. And Michael Reed is, something wonderful happened to him that I'm going to let him tell his testimony, how we met, what happened. And this is going to be a very inspiring testimony. You have already blessed me immensely today, just in the short time we had mm -hmm. chance to visit. The only difference, you had a beautiful brown hair, now you got, you're getting blonde now. <laughs> yeah, I'm losing it. <laughs> yeah. Tell about your, how we got acquainted, how, what you were doing back there. Well, it was uh, back in the time I was in the police. Uh, someone came to me one day and they said that there was a group of Americans and they'd come over to England and they were dealing with drug addicts and that they were holding meetings and God spoke in these meetings. And at the time I was an atheist. So I said to them, look, God doesn't exist, we don't speak. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll prove he doesn't exist. And they said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'll go down and check out the hall before the meeting begins. Because somehow I had a concept of uh, God speaking by a big booming voice coming out of the auditorium saying, this is God. I had no idea what they meant by God speaking. So I went down early to this hall. It was in the new gallery in Regent Street and began to check it out, looking for hidden microphones and loudspeakers <laughs> for this so-called voice of God. And what happened, most of the people knew me as Tiger, even though I was in plain clothes. And they began to leave the hall, the people that had come, because they were frightened that I was there to nick them. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the men who was running it came and asked for an assurance that I wouldn't arrest anyone while I was there. And so I gave him my word, because I wouldn't have kept it anyway if I'd wanted <laughs> to arrest someone. And uh, then he said to me, do you believe in God? And I was so angry. I said to him, look, I worship the golden calf that Aaron made on the bottom of Mount Sinai, now beat it. And the chap <laughs> just retreated, <laughs> rather shocked. And um, I, I really went with antagonism. I went there because I just hated what I saw as Christianity, hated the things that I saw as just hypocritical. And so I sat there and watched for this so-called move of God and God speaking. And instead, what I heard was people getting up and giving a testimony to the power of Jesus Christ to deliver from drugs, from all the filth of their life. And as I listened to them, I began to realize that these were people who I had no answer for, and I knew life had no answer for mainliners who had been delivered with heroin and cocaine. And suddenly I realized that God was doing something that no man could do. And it began to just get my interest. After the meeting was over, you came up to me, and I remember that I, I was up seeing if they were real mainliners, you know, not just skin poppers. 
and I wanted to look at them, and I knew what a mainliner was, so I wanted to make sure their testimony was true. But you came up and you invited me along to another meeting, and you said, look, I'd like you to talk to people about the drug addicts in the area. I hear you're in the police. And what I did at the time is I agreed to that, but I noticed you never mentioned God, you never mentioned Christ, you never mentioned anything, you just invited me to this meeting. And I agreed to go. It was a meeting three days later. And I went, uh, and I took two people with me. And we sat about 40 rows back in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and there must have been 4,000 there. And people got up and they testified to the healing power of Christ. And they testified to the delivering power of Jesus Christ. And as the meeting went on, a woman got up to sing called Mrs. Simpson. Now, I didn't know anything about Christianity or the baptism of the Spirit or, or any of those things. All I knew was that, as far as I was concerned, there was no God. And I sat there, and Mrs. Simpson got up and sung. And as she was singing, tears began to roll down her cheeks. And then she sung in what I thought was her native language, because she was a, a, a Negro woman, and I thought she was singing in her native language. But all I can say is at the moment that she began doing that, I just knew God was real. <laughs> I just knew it. I didn't know how I knew, I just knew. I knew she was real, I knew God was real. And then came the worst time in any meeting for me, that was the collection. And as the plate was coming towards me, God spoke to me. And he said that if I gave everything, he'd provide. And without a thought, first of all, the first thing I did was look round to see who it was who was talking with me. Because it was so loud and so clear, I thought there was someone who had spoken it to me. And then I realized mm. it was a voice within. And I put my hand in my pocket, took all my money out, and <laughs> dropped it in the plate. After it had gone about four beyond me, I realized what I'd done, but it was too late. That's the one I said. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I remember that you left the platform. There was about 200 people on it, and you left, and you came down straight to me after the altar call, and you said, come on, I've got people for you to meet. And I walked down the front, and as I did, there was a woman who was prayed for and she just crashed out on the floor and I kind of w gingerly walked round her and you just laughed and said strong stuff this religion and I thought yeah <laughs> uh, and I gingerly walked by her and wondered and then you introduced me to someone who was going to open a, a home for drug addicts and alcoholics and I remember saying to him well anything I can do to help I'd be glad to do and he just looked at me and he said are you a Christian and there was a silence. And then he said, that's a $64,000 question. I said, no, it's my business. And then uh, the hall began to clear, and we walked down that hall. And I remember pulling your arm, and we sat down halfway back down that hall. I remember saying to you, you know, those drug addicts and alcoholics, they're hooked. But I'm more hooked than they are. <laughs> I said, there's things in my life that I can't get free of. I'm driven by ambition, driven by hatred, driven by all things. I said, I'm more trapped than they are. 
because here am I, a respectable person in society, and I'm trapped. And you just laughed and said, come on, let's go for coffee. <laughs> and I remember getting in the car. Uh, I had my car outside with you and Rose and Earl Pickett and his wife. And as we were driving back to your hotel, you were laughing and joking, and it struck me that there was laughter and joy and jokes, but it was clean. And the only joke I ever knew was a dirty joke. And it so hit me, just the joy and, and the cleanness and the holiness of it all. And I drove back and we parked outside the hotel and there was an Angus Steakhouse nearby and you said, come on, let's go and have a meal. And we went down and it was about by then 10.30, 11 o'clock at night. And I remember going down and we sat down and Earl began sharing. And when my steak arrived, mm -hmm. as I began to cut it, God spoke to me because I put all my money in the collection and there was no way to get any money before the next morning. And God said, see, I did provide. <laughs> and we went up after that to the uh, room you, where you were and you shared and then you said these words that I shall never forget. You said, you know, Jesus died for your sins on Calvary's tree. And I said, I've always known that. But for the first time in my life, I knew it inside. And then you said, you know, he rose again from the dead. And I remember saying, I've always known that. But for the first time, I knew it inside. <laughs> it just was so real to me. And then you and Rose began to pray with Earl. And as you prayed, I, I was sitting on the sofa and I began to screw up tighter and tighter because there was such a feeling of joy inside that I wanted to laugh and laugh and laugh and it just flooded my being but I didn't want to offend you and mm -hmm. so I felt that it would be the worst thing to do to laugh and so I sat on that sofa praying that you'd shut up because <laughs> I was getting more and more feeling I'd explode uh, and I was so I, I so didn't want to offend and when you finished praying, it seemed like an eternity to me, but when you finished, I was relieved. And it must have been three o'clock in the morning. And we said farewell, and I, I, I arranged to meet you for breakfast next day. And I went home, and as I went home, I ran. And it was pouring with rain, and I suddenly realized I was singing at the top of my voice going down <laughs> the street. And I stopped to make sure no one had seen me. And then I went back to where I live, which was a section house. And I was so full of joy, you'd give me a New Testament. And I went and ran a bath, hot bath, and I sat in that bath and read my New Testament till the morning. I just couldn't sleep. I was just on fire. And the next morning I went and we had breakfast. And that afternoon, Daryl Haunt, uh, came to me and he said, well, you've been converted, Michael, but you need to be filled with the Holy Ghost. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, well, it's the third person of the Godhead. I said, oh, I've never heard of it. And he said, no, it's him. He's the third person of the Godhead. I said, well, I don't care all the niceties. I said, just how do I receive? And he said, all you do is ask Jesus. So I said, fine. 
So I knelt down in that hotel room, and I remember it as though it was only yesterday. I cried out, Jesus! <laughs> because I wanted to make sure he could hear. Somehow my concept was still he was in heaven. Fill me with the Holy Ghost. And as I did, that joy that I'd felt the night before came back, and I began to laugh and laugh and laugh and cry, but with laughter and joy. And all of a sudden I found I was speaking in a different language. And I found I could go loud and soft, fast and slow. I got up and tried it from each corner of the room. I didn't know what was happening. No one had explained to me tongues. I didn't even know there was a gift of tongues. I just knew God had filled me and there was a tremendous joy. And everything, every burden in my life had gone. And the thrill of knowing the reality of Christ. And God filled me with the Holy Ghost. Then I knew at that moment that I couldn't go on in the police in the way I was living. Not that someone had come and preached against sin. I never gave up sin. It gave me up. I, I, I can honestly say God worked inside me and changed my appetites, my desires, mm. my longings. And no one ever told me what was right and wrong. I knew inside because he'd come inside. And I remember going and I, I, I didn't know what to do, so I went to my superintendent and I said, look, I've got to leave the police. I, I can't anymore go. And he said, why not? And so I began to explain to him that I got converted. And I gave him my testimony mm. of exactly what happened. Well, he started looking normal. But by the time I'd got to the experience of tongues, his eyes were like soup plates. He was looking at me undecidedly pale. And he said, Michael, he said, you need never go on the streets again. <laughs> He'd had enough. And I didn't. I left. But what happened was strange. Three policemen caught me. And they said, we want to talk to you. We hear you've been converted. And I said, yeah, that's true. They said, we'd like to talk to you. And they arranged a meeting. And I met with them to share what God had done. And they told me a story that a year before they'd made a covenant with God, they decided they would prove that God would answer prayer. And so they chose the most corrupt, the most immoral, and the least likely, and the most godless, and the least likely ever to get converted. And they covenanted to pray every day of that year for that individual. And they chose me. <laughs> and for a year they prayed for me every day. And they were thrilled, and you know, it was praise God, thank you Jesus, for what he'd done. And do you know something? As soon as I told them I spoke in tongues, not one of them would speak to me. <laughs> that was it. God had gone too far. <laughs> he had done something that was beyond their belief. And, and that's, that, that's what changed you. That's what it When Simpson sang the tongues. Yeah. That so was many, what, that so was so what, many want to keep that out. That's what changed me. I didn't know it was tongues. I thought it was her own language. But I tell you, all I can say is what it says in Corinthians tr is true that it convinces the unbeliever. It convinced me. 
I didn't know what it was, but what I did know is God was real at that moment when she ministered in the Holy Ghost. And I could never deny what God did. I, I just thank God for it. I was just so sad how offended people were with the testimony. And so I left the police and went and worked um, in the home for drug addicts and alcoholics for a year. And then the Lord led me to leave. And I went up to Liverpool and by various dints, uh, I, I went through ministries and I gave up ministry at one time and went into business because I found personally in my own experience that the worst people to have as friends sometimes can be Christians. <laughs> uh, the most, I don't know, I suppose it would be fair to say that uh, if you want problems in your life, join a church <laughs> very often. Uh, it shouldn't be that way, but it is that way. You know, Paul, uh, no, it was James wrote, you know, sweet and bitter water coming out of the same fountain. These things ought not to be, but so often they are. And God led me, and um, I met my wife some... Uh, 1970 and it was amazing I was at a Christian meeting and Von Brandt was speaking in, in Liverpool and uh, my wife saw me across an auditorium there were about 4,000 people there and when she saw me God spoke to her and said you're going to marry that man and she didn't know who I was. I was just, <laughs> and she thought that's ridiculous because she didn't know who I was. She'd never seen me before. And when we walked out, a friend who I was with introduced me to her. And uh, I thought nothing of it except that um, something tugged and, and we arranged to meet. And then after we'd seen each other a couple of times, I somehow just knew that was the girl for me. And I remember going and driving around Liverpool and, and saying, Dear God, I know that's the woman, but I don't want to do anything against your will. I just want your way. And I said, I'm too emotional to make a valid choice. I said, I, I, I wouldn't hear your word if you spoke it to me. <laughs> and so I, I, I thought, I'm not going to play Bible bingo and open my Bible and hope for a text. That's wrong. So I, I, I was in my car at the end of her road, and I opened my heart to God, and I said, Lord, I said, the very next vehicle that passes this car has got to have the answer. And I opened my eyes, and a lorry was driving by at that second. A truck, it would be in your terms. And when I looked at it, its number plate on the back was W-E-D, WED. And so I went up and asked her to marry me. <laughs> and we did. <laughs> as simple as that. Now, I'm not recommending that as a way of guidance, <laughs> but uh, that was what God did. And we, we got married, and God was gracious to us. Uh, I wouldn't preach at that time. I'd given up the ministry, and I wouldn't preach. I'd got hurt by man's spitefulness, and I just felt not to ever go back into it. And then 
God dealt with my life. People would come for weekends and we would see miracles of healing. They'd get delivered. I'd still pray for people as individuals, but I wouldn't go back into the ministry. And um, I was very successful in business. And then an opportunity came to move to Ripon and, and uh, to go to a church that I'd begun years before. And I went there. A pastor was in there then who had been a friend of mine. And I'd started the church in a, just a farmhouse years before. And it was about 50 strong. And um, I opened a Christian bookshop and a printing business, and we moved there. And God did lovely things. It doubled the size of the church. People responded. They'd come into the Christian bookshop. I'd pray for them. They'd get healed. Things would happen. And then the church went into discipleship, you know, the heavy shepherding. Mm -hmm. And in the end, my wife and I left. And we left with uh, nothing but the car. We drove my three children, my dog, my wife. And we left everything. We left all our money, the business, the home, just to get out. I wasn't going to be part of what they were doing. reason I left was all the workers I had in the printing business went into heavy shepherding. All the people in the bookshop wanted to go that way. I couldn't. I just couldn't. I knew it was wrong. And so I left. And we went down to London. And we lived in one room. And I went through a trying time in my life because uh, my wife got myxedema, and we didn't know what it was at the time. Her thyroid packed in. And my daughter, my, that's my third child, was born, and she was six months old. And I began to notice something was wrong with her. And the company I went to work for as a marketing director, I discovered that the chairman was embezzling money, so I had to resign my job. And so I was left with no job, because I'd just resigned, and my wife ill, and then my daughter, and we took her to hospital, and she had tests, and the specialist said, whatever you do, put this daughter of yours into a home, she'll be a vegetable. She'll never move, she'll never talk, she'll never do anything. And uh, it was a sad time. And I cried to God, and I said, Lord, it can't be that way. I prayed many prayers that he'd take her home because I couldn't bear it. And one day in a meeting, God came and spoke, and he asked me whether I loved her. And I said, Father, you know I love her. And he came again and said, do you love your daughter? And I said, you know I love her. And then the third time he came and asked me the same question. He said, do you love your daughter? And I said, you know I love her. And then he said the most wonderful words to me. He said, well, if you love her as an earthly father, how much more do you think I love her as a heavenly father? And at that moment I knew he'd heal her. And we watched from that day on, everything changed. And within six months, we took her back to the same specialist. And she's perfectly healed. Mm. And, you know, I sometimes look, she's 14 now. And when she runs towards me, 
with her arms outstretched, saying, Daddy, Daddy, I remember there's a God of grace and love who heals, who delivers, who makes whole. And God used it to turn my heart again to the call that was put there all those years ago when you first met me. And uh, we started with three people in our living room, just a prayer meeting. And I'd get them up. One man was so, so bad, he used to run up and down the room shouting and screaming at me. <laughs> and the other two were just about as bad. And um, we started a church. And with the three people, and within six months, it was about 60, and we, we'd hired a hall. And God began to do beautiful miracles of healing. Uh, and uh, people would come from all over just to get healed and prayed for. And I began to feel that I was going back into what I'd had before. Uh, and I didn't want to. But in my heart, there was a longing for some other realm. And a man came to a meeting. He was from Argentina. And I, I just felt, well, I, I'm sure he's in error. So I took one of the brothers with me who had been with us and said, look, I'll take you to this meeting. And when he goes into error, I'll nudge you. <laughs> and the first thing that happened was he got up and he preached from Luke's gospel on the faithful and unfaithful servants. And the first things he said was, well, what God wants us to do is not get converts, but make disciples. And I nudged this friend of mine. I thought, <laughs> here we go, discipleship. And, uh, excuse me. Um, the strange thing was that the moment I nudged him, God spoke to me and said, you must have this man in your church. And I thought, dear God, you've got to be kidding. And so for the next 20 minutes, there was a furious row went on between the pair of us. I'm telling God, no, I'm not having him. And he's telling me, you are. So after 20 minutes, I came to a deal. Because in the end, I give in. And I said, all right, Lord, I'll have him once, and once only on one condition. He's got to have one evening free while he's in England, and I'll invite him for that evening. If he hasn't got an evening free, he's not coming. So I went up to him after the meeting, and I said, excuse me. I said, but you don't know me, but I'd like to invite you to my church. Have you one evening free? And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I've only one evening. <laughs> and I said, all right, I'll pick you up from wherever you are and take you to my church. And I did. And when I picked him up, Within two minutes of having him in the car, I knew that he was the man God had sent. My wife had been praying and fasting that God had sent us someone. And I, I just knew this was the man. And years before, 18 years before, during the rev revival times in Argentina, he had had a vision of a man in England who he was coming to meet. And I was that man. And so God had caused us to meet. And the strange thing is that was before I was even converted. God had already shown him who he is to meet. And he... And that was Brother Miller, right? Brother Miller. Brother Miller was the one who worked with Tommy Hicks in Argentina. That's right. Was that 200,000 a night there? 
Yeah. They went up to 500,000, some meetings. Uh, and he came, <coughs> he came, and I spent uh, that night, he shared, and then he cancelled the rest of his itinerary and stayed a fortnight with us. And I'd get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and we'd talk till 3 the next morning and <laughs> have a couple of hours sleep and go back. At last I'd met a man who knew what my heart hungered after. And nothing happened in the church till uh, maybe, uh, I think it was two or three months later. We're in the church and God spoke to me. Uh, we were Pentecostal in form. We had redemption hymnals. We were, you know, uh, I thought a tambourine was an instrument of the devil. And, uh, <laughs> but you could clap your hands. And uh, we were holiness types. And not that there's anything wrong with holiness, but we were stodgy. And <laughs> God spoke to me and said, stop the meeting and stack the chairs up. And I said, Lord, you've got to be kidding. That's crazy. And so I carried on with the meeting. And the next meeting, the Lord came to me with the same thing. He said, stop the meeting and stack the chairs up. And I thought, that's crazy. I can't do that. Anyway, the next meeting that came along, we began to sing a hymn and we'd sung the first verse and God spoke to me again and said, stop the meeting and stack the chairs up. And I thought, I've just begun. So I stopped it, stopped the pianist. And I said to everyone, right, stack up your chairs. And they looked at me and I looked at them and they thought I was crazy. But <laughs> I got them to stack their chairs up, put them all around the side of the room and they held on to their chairs looking at me. And so I persuaded them back into the center of the room. And I looked at them and they looked at me because he'd only said, stack your chairs up. So I thought, what shall I do? So I said, well, um, now we're going to praise God. I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> and so I closed my eyes and I was going to pray. And as I lifted my hands up, all I can say is all bedlam broke loose. I opened my eyes and people were crashing to the floor all over the place. Other people were leaping and jumping and dancing, tears streaming down people's faces. Others were crying out, confessing their sin. And for the next two and a half hours, God took the meeting. I just stood and watched God doing things. It was beautiful. <laughs> and for the next two and a half, three months, we'd come to the meetings and, and we'd just sit there. And if a stranger walked in, we knew he'd either hit the deck or he'd run for the door. And we'd just begin to sing and the glory of God would come down. One time a, a man who was immoral, he, his wife was in the church, he hadn't come, he was running around with other women. He walked in, he didn't know what had gone on. And I remember seeing him sitting on the second row and I thought, oh dear God, there's gonna be trouble here in a minute. And sure enough, as we began to sing, the glory of God came down and he just crashed down on the floor and he began to scream and holler. And we kept on singing. I just ignored him. And everyone sung louder and after 20 minutes, he got up a changed man. No one said a word to him. No one tried to convict him. The Holy Ghost did his work. He was delivered. Amen. He was delivered and he was cleaned up. I remember another... And, and it lasted. Oh, you bet. He's still in the church <laughs> uh, with his wife and children. Uh, another time, a French girl came in, and I looked at her. I thought, how on earth she got in here? 
She wore tight jeans and a jumper that never met the jeans, you know, bare midriff. And it, it was white. And she sat there. And I didn't know who she was, colored girl. And uh, the meeting began and the glory of God came. And the Lord spoke to me and said, go and pray for that girl. So I left the platform, went down. And the moment I touched her, I closed my eyes, and I touched her and found she wasn't there anymore. So I looked down, and she was shooting down the floor like a snake. So I went after her and to pray for her. And, you know, in the end, I had to put a knee on her to hold her still, but she had big white gnashes and was trying to bite my fingers off. So <laughs> I realized I had to hold her still, and all the church all began to get very holy and look to heaven. <laughs> so I got no help from anyone else. <laughs> I just prayed. And she said afterwards, she couldn't speak English. She didn't understand a word of what was said. But what she told my wife afterwards was that she prayed and she said, Dear God, if this is you, make that man on the platform come down and pray for me right now. And at that moment I walked down to her. All she knew was that She's next thing she knew, she felt a hot fire going through her head, and everything went from her. God delivered her. And we saw beautiful things. That went on for months, as I say. And God's taken us on. That was 14 years ago. God's built a church. Uh, we have a Bible school where we take messed up kids. It's not a, not a college, it's a Bible school. I take messed up kids, mainly from America because you mess them up better <laughs> over here. <laughs> and uh, we, we sort them out and just bring them through to a real experience of God. We also have a day school for the people in the church, just our own children. We don't take other people's gangsters. It's just people in the church, their kids, we'll take them in. And God's done lovely things. He's gathered us together. From three people, I suppose we're about 350 now. But the lovely thing is that we've seen the new move of God start in the earth. Because God's moving again. I've seen it on continent after continent. Over the last 14 years, I've been privileged to travel around. Uh, three and a half years ago, I had a dream. And it was a strange dream. Evil was invading. And I fought and fought all night long. And the next night when I went to sleep, I was back in the same place fighting with evil. And all of a sudden, I heard the angels of God as I cried in my heart. And they were singing a song, the Lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed over all his enemies. And the Lord appeared. And I began to jump on the evil and glory in it <laughs> and I woke up and I didn't think you know much of it glory of God filled my soul but I didn't understand what God had done that night I went to church and I began to share what God had shown me and all over the congregation people started falling off their chairs and crying out to God and we had a visitation of God again in a wonderful sovereign way I'd begin to preach, and sometimes I'd get halfway through my sermon, and people would begin screaming out, that's me, that's me, and they'd fall off their chair, 
and I'd have to stop preaching for 20 or 30 minutes till they got control. And God began to move. Another time, God gave me one word, fire, and I ran down the church just shouting, fire, fire. And when I got to the back of the hall, I turned around and every single person had gone down under the power. They went down row by row like mown corn. And what it did, it changed people's lives. They went up into heaven. People would go for two or three hours, just gone. You couldn't revive them. They went up into heaven and they'd come back, tell you the things they'd seen the glories of God. And I made notes, you know, and was careful that there was nothing strange coming in. And that started, and then we went to Holland, and we had a beautiful visitation of God there. People had visited from America, came and, uh, from Atlanta, and God moved in a wonderful way, and the work moved to Atlanta as well. Then we went to Hawaii, and God poured out his spirit there. Then we went down to Argentina, and we saw the most beautiful outpouring of God's Spirit. And then in Taiwan, Dad Miller went over to Taiwan, and God's Spirit was poured out the same way. <coughs> it's different in that now God is pouring out His Spirit, but it's the Holy Ghost and fire. It's dealing with the wills of men. It's bringing people to give the rulership of their lives over to Jesus Christ. What is demanding of men now is not that they have power to do things, but that they realize that he has power to do what he wants. It, it's a sacrifice of our rights. One of the biggest curses in America is the Bill of Rights, because people think they have rights. But when we come to him, we lose our rights, and he has all the rights. And God sending that fire again, the fire of cleansing, the fire of deliverance, uh, where the giftings are now functioning with Holy Ghost fire, the tremendous convictions of God. In the conference, we saw people run out of meetings, and they spent the night in the fields weeping before God, and they'd come back changed people. We saw people who for weeks would just weep and groan under the pain of their sin. But my, when they were converted, they were converted. And God's done such beautiful things. And all over the world I'm seeing it. In Argentina I went to one church and there was no move of God. Everyone said, don't go there. That's the one place you mustn't go. So I went, because when <laughs> they say that to me, that's a challenge. And we went there, and I knew nothing would work unless it was supernatural. So I told them, I said, look, God's power's here. I'll show you. And I called someone off the front bench, and I said, you come here. I called him out, and he stood about seven feet away from me, and I told him what was wrong in his life, what problems he had. And I said, now God's power's going to hit you. And he just fell where he stood, on the floor out under the power. Then I called a woman out from about three rows back. By this time, everyone's head had gone down. <laughs> no one wanted to be chosen. <laughs> and I told her, and when they saw God's power, they're unable to read their lives and do things. I said, look, it's free for anyone. And people began to come. And 
I'd pray for one and about 30 people would just go out under the path. And God just moved. And by the end of the weekend, people were walking four hours to get to the meeting. And they'd get there an hour early. And they were all over the floor on the windowsills, outside in the gardens, just coming to hear the word of God. How do you explain the volume of the power? Simple. Uh, I believe that when God wants to do an operation, sometimes he needs to give us an anesthetic. <laughs> That's the only explanation I have. I don't know. I, I, I know this, that people have often criticized it. They, they've said, well, why do you need to fall under the path? Well, to me, I have no problem because in the Bible times they did. It says when Jesus ministered, many people fell. Devils came out crying with loud voices. Um, when Jesus was challenged by the centurions, he turned around and said, I'm here, and they all fell back as dead. So it's a biblical thing. It's always been part of God's ministry. Um, the only reason early Pentecost had it uh, Modern-day Pentecostalism hasn't got it because most people are scared of the divine and the supernatural. They, they're they happy if someone gets healed as long as it's not dramatic. Um, they're happy if um, someone gets help. But the real power of God, people are afraid of. What do you see in the future now? Glory. More glory. Yeah, I just want to go home to be with him <laughs> when it's his time. But I, I see that there's beginning a move of God, but this move will be different. I think it'll be different in one sense. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail. The trouble is that there's such division and schism and so many little kingdom builders that Jesus is going to be king and it's going to be his church. And my great prayer is not to build a big work, not to do anything, but to teach people how to love him, to teach people how to become worshippers in spirit and truth, to teach people how to fall in love with the king of kings because that's the first and great commandment. In heaven, no one's going to need healing. In heaven, no one's going to need deliverance. In healing, in heaven, no one's going to need a word of knowledge. The only thing they're going to need and the only value they're going to have in heaven is how much they've learned to love him. That's going to be the richest prize of all. And if there was one crown I'd like to cast before him, it's a crown of rejoicing in him. I'd like to be able to say, Lord, I led people to a heart love of you. We sing a song in our church, and since the first visitation of God, it's been the most precious song to me. And it's, there's just one thing, one thing I ask of thee, cause me to excel, excel in loving thee. There is nothing else in life I want to be, but by thy grace, one who excels in loving thee. That's going to be the most precious thing of all, to bring people to that kind of experience. There are so many workers, there are so few worshippers. There are so many preachers, there are so few lovers. There are so many who 
want to do things for God. There are so few who realize that he wants to do something for them. If only people would turn around and realize that it's a move of God in the earth where God's saying, look, if you'll get out of the way, I'll do it. If you'll move aside, I'll be king. That's what I believe is happening. And I, I'm, wherever I go, I look for hungry hearts. I find so few. I find many churches and many pastors, and I speak at pastors' conferences. I find many pastors are not hungry for God at all. They're hungry for success. They're hungry for numbers. They're hungry for people. But the one thing they miss is the one thing needful. Just loving him. They haven't been taught. The church has lost the one vision that Jesus had, that we might worship him in spirit and truth. Uh, and I feel that this move will bring that back. In the early days of Azusa Street, they learned how to love. Mm -hmm. It was worshiping the king. Uh, it's precious. Any time a man brings people back there, miracles happen. Not because we demand things <coughs> of God. There's a move of name it, claim it, grab it, got it, I call it. It's this prosperity doctrine, and it's wrong. You see, my Heavenly Father owns everything. But I don't want everything. I just want what he wants. My Heavenly Father can do anything. But I don't want him to do what I want. I want him to do what he wants. I think we've lost the vision so often that Jesus said, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I come to do thy will, O God. I want it written of my life at the end, that I came and did the will of him and pleased his heart, that I learned to love him, that I learned to be a worshiper of him, a follower of him. And if it's a big thing or a small thing, I'd just like that to be the testimony of God for me. Lord, there's just one thing, one thing I ask of thee. Cause me to excel, excel in loving thee. That's my prayer. It's all I want. Some of these that were not in heaven, do they have any special message about that? Uh, no, just visions, beautiful okay. visions. Uh, visions of the glory of God, visions. Some saw Jesus on the white horse <laughs> with true and faithful on his side. They saw biblical things, um, beautiful things. Uh, and it, it was just beautiful. But, um, and that Jesus was coming again soon. That came time after time. That, that was prominent. Yeah, that was prominent. I, I, I know that it's time of revival. I can't understand why pastors are waiting. He's already here. He's already doing it. Uh, I, I've been to churches which are dead, uh, and there people who said there's no hope, and within minutes, it's alive. You only have to stand there and say, Jesus is here and he's there. Uh, but it's not... Uh, it's a different, Steamers, between the... Uh, 
omnipresence of God and the manifested presence. People have lost the manifested presence. They have the omnipresence and they don't know the difference. Um, you can move in the gifts of the Spirit by angelic power. Moses was told, look, I'll send my angel. He'll bring you in. He'll deliver your enemies. And you can have that without God really being there. But the difference is when you have the manifested presence of the King of Kings, then you have to give him the throne. Then he has the right to do what he will. But when he does it, it's glorious. And, mm. <laughs> you know, you, you, you can't demand, you can't ask, you can't uh, push your way. You have to yield <coughs> to his. And that's what man doesn't want to do. Man doesn't want to go God's way. Mark, it's such a joy for me to meet you here today at the World Headquarters in mm. Auditorium to hear you speak to us. When I think back about well, what year was it? 1965 when? 65. 65. Jerry Jensen sitting here next, next to it. Any question you want to ask Jerry or Mark? Oh, <laughs> when I think you're uh, here back in 1965, how you, how we met you, and then realize all that has happened in your life. It's, uh, it blows my mind. It's, it blows my <laughs> You know, the thing I thank God for all the time is that there were a group of American businessmen who were fired up by God, who had a vision from God, and who came. And if it did no other good and all that expense did nothing else, I want to tell you there's one man who will be eternally mm -hmm. grateful. That's me. Can tell, can, if you were, can tell what it meant to England? It, it really changed the face of England. It changed the face because the people went out to lots of churches and the charismatic move was born in England, really, by those people that went out and shared with ministers all over the place. Uh, I believe it was instrumental in the starting of the charismatic move as a widespread movement in England. And I thank God for it. it there are many, many people who would never have heard many people who didn't know that there was a Holy Ghost. I didn't. Uh, it's terrible to say I was brought up in a church background, Anglican, and never had I any concept of salvation. No one ever told me. And that's why I was so much against religion, because I'd seen the false, and I just knew it was false, and I didn't want it. I mean, the, the chaplain at the public school where I was was a homosexual, and that just turned me right off Christian things. I thought, well, there's no reality. And it was only when I saw the power of God move and I heard the testimony of people who had been met by the living God that I knew it was real. And I thank God for those men. I thank God for that flight. The other interesting thing is that uh, the man who had the greatest influence on your life was Tommy Hicks when right. he prophesied in your home. The other interesting thing is that you led me into the things of God mm -hmm. and the baptism and the Spirit. <clears throat> and even though I didn't speak in tongues till the next day, I remember <laughs> what happened that night. And tell how we read the Bible that morning in the, in the yeah. bathtub. Yeah. I'll never forget that. No. When you told me the first time. 
Yeah, I just sat there. I couldn't go to sleep. I was on fire, uh, but the right type of fire. <laughs> and, you know, the beautiful thing was that Tommy Hicks had prophesied in the full gospel business when was birth, and then Tommy Hicks flew down to Argentina, right. and the wonderful revival started there. And it was Dad Miller who uh, was influenced there. Brother Miller. Yeah, Brother Miller. And I met him, and he was 14 years ago. Can, let me add a word here. I think this to me was, last week I took Brother Miller out to dinner, my wife and I, mm -hmm. Rose. And in our conversation, when he talked about all the division he had back in the early 50s, 51, 52, yeah. how God would open, open him up and give him vision what's going to happen in Argentina, what's going to happen to Peron and and his wife, how the country is going to change, all through vision. And then, then when he's telling his brother Miller, I said, that same year that Tommy was in my home when I had the vision for the fellowship, and across the wall in the other room was a bedroom where Tommy was supposed to be sleeping, but he's he's been slaying all night long, up and down, slaying by the... Thomas said, Demas, I've never felt so much power coming through that wall right there. Mm. Every time I got up, I was slain. That's beautiful. And yet, Thomas one went to Argentina, and Miller had the vision about the same time we are having vision here. So the mighty God that's orchestrated the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and here we're sitting together because of the same involvement. Same involvement. It's a seed. Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not a Catholic. I don't believe in apostolic succession in the way they mean it, but I sure believe in it. That seed that Tommy Hicks had was sown in your heart, my heart, Brother Miller's heart. God sent his seed, no. and there's his seed in the earth, and that seed's alive. And I believe that the Pentecostal move is coming back again to life. I believe that the work of God's going to stir again in a way it's never been seen before with tremendous power. And I believe that God wants to restore again to his church his sovereignty, his rulership, his kingship. There are so many usurpers to God's throne. I believe we've got to come back to holiness. Mm. How do we do that now? That's the question now. You can't. There is only one holy. You know the wonderful words of Jesus. Someone came to him once and said, Good master. He said, There's none good. Save God. And I believe it's only as the Spirit of God really envelops a man, fills a man, overflows a man, and burns out the things that are displeasing to him, that that man can ever know holiness because there's only one holy, and that is God. And we need people to be filled with the life of God. I don't think it'll stop us being human beings. I don't think we'll become perfect because we'll all have human frailty. We'll all have this treasure in earth and vessels, Paul says. But the wonderful thing about it is when we allow him to flow and when he, we allow him to have the preeminence, then his life can flow through us. I think the holiness that people are looking for, you know, I, I, I'm afraid of old-time holiness, where it was clothesline holiness, you know, it was all outward things. It has to be an inward heart, an inward love. The love of God shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Ghost. And 
people need to realize that what they need is a living experience with the living God, an encounter with God that transforms from the inside out. We don't have enough encounters now, do we? No. Most people never have one at all. They claim to be filled with the Spirit, but I believe they've had an anointing which has allowed them to speak in tongues, but they've never been filled. They've never really laid down their life. The cross has never worked. Self-denial has never come. Jesus said, except a man deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. But most people don't ever deny themselves. They believe that the gospel is for letting you have everything you want. They, they teach it now from pulpits that all you have to do is claim it, claim this promise and that promise. That's a lie of the devil. It's using God. I believe there's a difference between uh, reality, which is allowing Jesus Christ to have his way, and fornication, which is taking all the benefits of the gospel without paying the price. It's like a man taking the fruit of love without marrying. And that's what so many preachers are doing today. They're telling people, look, you can come and you can have it. It's deadly and it's wrong. I, I would rather people came and they humbled themselves. You know the song that she sung, There's an Old Rugged Cross? Mrs. Simpson. Mm -hmm. Bless her. You know, she won me to the Lord. <laughs> or the Lord won me to himself. Yeah, by singing in tongues. By singing in tongues. It's the most precious gift of all. It's the one people Would you hate. repeat that one more time? I want our viewers, our hearers to hear this. It's the most precious it's my, it's gift of all. Strong conviction. <laughs> you know what it says in the Bible? It says that tongues is a sign for the unbeliever. I was an atheist, an unbeliever. She sung in tongues. God used that gift to bring me to life. That was his choice. I think that so often people belittle tongues because it's supernatural. They belittle tongues because they don't understand it. They belittle tongues because in their puny little minds they feel they know better than God does. But if God gives a gift, I say, I want anything he gives. I love all the gifts of God. <laughs> and the most important gift of all is a gift of life. Thank you, Mike. I want to thank you. I think well, I want you to pray for all the men that will be listening to this tape, that they get on fire. Yeah. That's Amen. my that's my conviction, my belief that God wants to send the Holy Ghost fire. That's right. He, he wants to set their hearts aflame. The thing they need most of all is to realize that no one's special, really. God will meet anyone if they're prepared to really humble themselves and if they're prepared to give up their rights if they're prepared to resign being American and say, I want to be a citizen of heaven. <laughs> uh, it's the only way in Christ. I believe that there's a move of God afoot. I want to pray for them. Thank you. Father, I just thank you for Demas and for all you did, Lord, and for raising up men who were men of the Spirit. Lord, and in this day and in this time, you're going to raise up another people of people who are going to love you and worship you and praise you and adore you, of people of broken hearts, but broken with love, broken with submission, 
are broken with hope. Lord, a people who can go out with fire in their beings, but it's the fire of love, not the fire of ambition. It's the fire of confidence in you. It's the fire of the Holy Ghost burning and urging and taking them on. Lord, I'd pray for anyone who hears this tape that in your grace and your love you'll melt their heart and draw them to yourself. Lord, that you'll teach them the ways of love and the ways of God. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you, Michael. Read from England who was a drug officer, prominent drug officer in England during the time of the summer drug of Soho during that time. Mm. Many of those boys come out from under the bridges and God said, you, you, you check them out for us. I remember. You, yeah. I you remember we used to cut the hair in the hotel room? Yeah, yeah, they needed it. They <laughs> needed a lot more than their hair cut, too, some of them. They, they got shared. They, their hearts got circumcised. Yeah. But I want to thank you. I'll tell you the most important thing you did, though. Though that was the outward thing, the glorious thing you did, is there were many ministers whose hearts got sheared. There were many ministers whose hair got cut down to size. And there <laughs> were many ministers who found out that there was a Holy Ghost mm -hmm. who wanted to fill them and enrich them and set them on fire. And that's what changed our land. It set a new direction. For all of England. Yeah. In fact, all of Europe, in fact. Yes, I believe it spread across, and many people don't understand that it was just a plane load of Americans. For some reason, we British, you know, ever since Boston, we seem to have a prejudice. Mm -hmm. You should never have thrown our tea overboard. <laughs> but ever since then, uh, there's prejudice. But the thing that is so wonderful is that God used a group of businessmen who had a vision that God had given to come and to share and to change our country. There's one man here, Jerry Jensen. I wouldn't say a few words because he worked so hard mm. in 1964-65 to make this happen. Mm. Three jet loads. It was three jets. Three jets, right. Yeah. Right, Jerry. You want to take my say word, Jerry? I can't pass this up. He worked very hard to put this whole thing together. Yeah. You and Ray Barnett, was it Barnett? Was it? Right, Ray Barnett. Well, it was a, it was the, probably the greatest thrill of my life doing it. The hardest thing I ever did in my life. We worked um, trying to get meetings and places and uh, get people to take someone that they didn't know and uh, send someone to them we didn't know. Uh, it just And we went there expecting God to do great things, but the people who were helping us didn't get the meetings lined up. We we had 16 meetings lined up, and we needed 1,600 uh, with all the people that we had. But God just opened doors, performed miracles. God uh, uh, took people who had no talents, no abilities of their own. I remember the one fellow demons from uh, the uh, Clifton's Cafeteria chapters that wanted to go on this airlift in the worst way, and he said, but he said, I've never given a public testimony in my life. He said, I don't know how to talk in front of crowds. I love to talk to people man to man, give them a voice magazine, invite them to come to a meeting. But he said, I, I just can't speak. And I said, well, 
uh, uh, he said, if you'll promise me, Jerry, I don't have to give, get up and give a testimony, he said, I'll go. He said, I'll invite people to come to meetings and pass out voice magazines. Mm -hmm. So I said, fine, I'll promise you, you won't have to speak. And we put him on a team of 27 people that were going up to the northern part of England. And, uh, and of course, if you're on a team of 27, if you've been full gospel business in a meeting, if you're number seven, you don't have a chance to speak, much less 27. And uh, so I said, don't worry, you won't have to. Well, the Lord had begun opening up meetings so fast for us down in London and all, all over Europe that uh, we, di we just didn't have enough people. In fact, when that team got up to northern England, they had to break it down to groups of four and three and two, and one day it was down to one, and he was the one. <laughs> and uh, he said, um, I'm not going, I won't take it. And he said, Jerry Jensen promised me I don't have to speak and I'm not going to speak. And they said, well, it's a prayer meeting. And he said, well, I can pray. I love to pray. So he said, I'll go to the prayer meeting, sure. And they told me when he got back to London, he said he realized he made his mistake when he, they drove up in a great big mansion, big castle of affair, you know. He said, a little prayer meeting in this great big place, you know. But he went in and they had a little prayer meeting, sure enough. And he prayed, and it was a beautiful time together in prayer. When it was over, he patted himself mentally on the back and started to go out to the car to go uh, back to the hotel. And somebody tapped him on the shoulder and said, Wait a minute, the meeting hasn't even begun yet. And uh, they took him into a huge, huge room there, had 350 people waiting to hear him speak. <laughs> and there was no way he could get out of it. He was there, they were there, and no matter what he told them about Jerry Jensen, they didn't know who he was and could care less, you know. And so he spoke. For the first time in his life, he gave a public testimony. And uh, when he finished, uh, an elderly gentleman came up to him, kind of a nondescript fellow, in a sweater, kind of wrinkled and so on. In fact, he tried to get rid of me. He just saw uh, just kind of a nice guy from around me. And somebody stopped and said, do you know who's talking to you? And of course, he didn't know. He said, no. I'm said, this man is considered to be the leading theologian of this entire area of England. It's a good thing he found out when he was through speaking. He had never made it, you know. But, but that man, with tears running down his cheek, told our friend, he said, you know, what you said to these people this day, I could have never said myself. But what you have said has so moved upon this, this crowd of people that this part of England will never be the same. And this is the kind of thing that happened over and over and over again that God took lives not because of their talents or their abilities or, or their knowledge. In fact, we, we thought we did so wonderful setting up some of these meetings. We had Derek Prince all lined up to go to Oxford, you know, because he's a graduate of Oxford. He'll have a great time there with the professors and the students and all. And we had another fellow, kind of like the one I am just shared with you, and we decided that he was just a good old guy. And we'd send him down to Soho and, and, and get some of the missions and give his testimony. Well, the Lord has a great sense of humor, I guess. He turned the whole thing around. And uh, here comes Derek Prince back from Soho Mission. And, the, and this poor guy ended up at Oxford University who didn't know anything about university. But God took both of those men. And, and uh, it was Derek Prince said to me, I, I knew he'd just be furious what happened. He said, you know, this is the most like, beautiful experience of my life. I'd never been to a Soho Mission, never been down there and dealt with those people, and to see the hunger of those men and watch God use that meeting was one of the greatest experiences of my life. So it's just beautiful to see how God does and, and still hear results of what he did. Hmm.
Okay, Mark, do you have anything you want to say, Mark? Mark Harris, manager of the headquarters here. Michael, I'd like to tell you how much we appreciate you coming and sharing your testimony and a word of encouragement. Knowing the experiences that you've had through the full gospel in 1965 and knowing where the, we are in uh, church history today, what advice would you give this fellowship at this time as we are in the threshold of this mighty move of God? And Demas spoke about that this in one of his letters here, you know, the, the third wave that we're involved in, uh, the, the, like a tidal wave, the, the third wave, that's where he believes we are. But regardless, uh, what advice would you give this fellowship? You've seen how it's impacted you in England. We've talked about Europe, and you're a man that has gone through that experience. What advice do you have for us? The only advice I can give anyone is learn to love him more. And when you love him, you'll do what pleases his heart. And when you do what pleases his heart, you'll do everything. Because in the end, that's the only advice I'd ever give ev anyone. It's loving him. You see, a worshipper of the Lamb becomes someone who will always do what pleases him because he's just so in love with him. I, I just hope that people will go out and share God's love like those men did in simplicity, in weakness, but in his strength. I just pray that they'll get a vision that it's not me and mine, and God bless me and mine, us four and no more, but there's a dying world out there and there's hungry hearts and if they'd only get out of their religious ways and their religious churches and get back to where people are and give up their theological differences I remember years ago I went to Canada and I was invited to speak at a big church and I remember walking up the steps I just met this pastor and I shook his hand and as I walked up the steps to take the meeting, he turned to me and he looked at me and he said, tell me, Michael, what's your view on eschatology? I looked at him and I put my hand on my stomach and I said, I don't think I've caught it yet. And I just walked on into the church. God's not interested in doctrine. God's interested in hearts. God's not interested in the niceties of crossing every T and dotting every I, that's for the Pharisee. He's interested in the souls of men. Jesus died to save the souls of men. And they're precious to him. We need to realize how precious everyone is to him. And we need to fall in love with him and present the preciousness of Jesus to everyone we meet. And we'll do that if we're really in love with him. It'll shine through us shine through our lives and through our hearts. That's my advice. Learn how to love him more. Thank you, Michael. Men, let's take this message, this testimony around the world. Pass it out everywhere. And let's pray for the fire of the Holy Ghost come back with mighty power. Amen. And God will bless us for it. Let's love one another. That's right. And if only men, you know, Demas, the one... We not only love God, we've got to learn to love one another. That's right. But if you love him, you will. You'll see they're made in his image. The strange thing is, you know, Demas, 
thing I'd like to say, and this is only my own personal opinion, uh, it's not from God, and it's not a prophecy, and it's not a word from God. This is, Paul wrote once in the scriptures, and he said, you know, I, I say it not from the Lord, so I'm permitted that. Um, if only men would stop trying to gain position and prominence and just be what God made them to be and be content with what God had given them and be content to show forth Christ in the place where he set them, the church would be a less troubled place. This work would be a less troubled place. The thing that happens so often is man's ego gets in the way of God's glory. And God said, I'm not going to share my glory with another if only men would climb down and say, Jesus, yours is the throne. You're the King of kings and Lord of lords. How the whole of the face of Christendom would change if only man would cease to be king and would acknowledge the king of kings. I know that there's a great thing of kingdom doctrine which is, you know, terribly going on around here. I want to tell people, I'll be glad if I get to heaven. When I hear those pearly gates close behind me, I shall say, Lord, you got me here. Lord, you saved me. I'm just grateful. I can't understand these people who want to sit on his left hand and his right hand. I'll be grateful to be with him for all eternity. If only men could lower themselves in their own eyes and prefer their brother above themselves, as the scripture says, what a happy place the church of God would be and what a change it would bring to all of Christendom and to the full gospel businessmen one of the troubles with businessmen is they pretend to be something in their business life. They pretend they've got somewhere. They pretend they've got something to give. That's how they live in business. And when they come to God, they try and put it over on God. They try and tell him they're important. But the only important one is the one we've come to meet, Jesus. Amen. He's the center of everything. Would to God they'd hear it. Would to God they wouldn't get offended with it. But by now, many tape recorders <laughs> might have turned off and they say, I don't want to hear that. They want to be something. But you know, it's being nothing and just being a servant that's the most important thing of all. People say, well, we're born to be priests and kings. But you know, it's priests and kings to our God not priests and kings to people. The priestly ministry is to God, not to people. We're not to be lording it over the flock of God. We're to be the servants. We're to be the foot washers. We're to be the lovers. We're to be those who come to serve. And would to God that all over this movement, the men of the movement, would become the servants, like those men who came in those three plane loads. They came as servants. The man that said, I haven't got anything, but he had the most precious gift of all. He had a faith in Christ. I thank God for those men. I, I found it a privilege just to come here and 
to see you and Rose again and to share what God's done and to be able to express my appreciation to you but most of all to him because he's everything to me. Thank you, Michael. Michael, read from England. What a joy. You, you've inspired me very much. Well, I love you. Very Thank much. You. God bless you. You know, you're my father in the faith. <laughs> Thank you. God bless.